HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN is now on Kitch, the first live streaming community for the food obsessed. Go to K-I-T-T-C-H dot com and find HRN in the channel's listing. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. A banquet with me, your host, Helen of Troy. And me, the Trojan horse. <laughs> what were we talking about yesterday? Oh, we were mentioning something about Trojan horses, but it was kind of slander, so let's leave it out. A uh, Trojan horse full of dill. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about a certain food personality's love for dill. What a fucking random thing for you to say. I know, it's pretty wacky. I need to reprimand you for singing, which is not allowed. I'm also eating popcorn. Stop eating popcorn. <laughs> I'm so hungry. I'm busy and hungry. I was just involved in Eat a parking. Pudding. It's a minute's quiet. Mmm, pudding or jello. Although that's almost too slurpy and squishy. It's audibly squishy. Look, I want to talk about parking for a second here and then I'll get over it. Okay. I just experienced one of what I think is one of the worst things a person can do to another person, (laughs) which is to see that someone has finally found a parking spot and to inch up behind them so they can't back up into it. Oh, that happens on your street all the time. It's like stealing some... It's like the equivalent of just finding a random child that you don't know that looks adorable and sweet and looking in its face and being like, there's no Santa and your parents are going to die someday and then just walking away. That's what it feels like. It's so fucked up. Why take that from someone? We all know the joy of finding a parking spot. You're just going to like make it impossible. Well, I feel like sometimes people want to take the spot themselves, which is. Well, that's fucking awful. That's actually better. You live in the mean streets of New York. You just got to get used to this every man for himself. Unbelievable. I was very upset. Here in the Midwest. Why don't you eat my asshole? That's what I said in my car to myself. Here in the Midwest, though. It's interesting because, well, everyone drives really bad, which is shocking mm. because this is an area created specifically for driving. Like, everyone has been driving here since the day they were born. Um, but because I drove in New York, I drive aggressively, but, like, you know, like, defensively aggressively. Not, like, it's considered aggressive in the Midwest. But basically, like, if, for example, I need to get over into, like, a lane, and so does everyone else, um, I will not wait for someone to let me over. I will push my car in until they have no choice, which people in the mm. Midwest are so completely shocked by. They don't know what to do. They just are like, what's happening? This person is crazy. <laughs> that's kind of what I do when I'm dating people. Also, I think that's <laughs> called passive aggressive driving. No, it's called aggressive driving. Mm. Okay, Listen, fine. You actually are supposed to let people over when there's a lane closed because not letting people over is what causes traffic issues so like basically you know every other car should let someone into their lane but no one does that 
So well, I only don't do it when I ha- and it's not that I won't do it. I'll still do it, but very begrudgingly. Like you know, when you're on the VQE or something, yeah. And someone decides to drive up the side and bypass like an hour of traffic, and well, then they want to come and cut in front of you. I'm like, you're a horrible person. And I'm, I'm not talking about those people. Person. Those people I will not let over. Um, I'm just talking about if we're on a two lane road, one lane happens to be closed, and you don't get enough time to figure it out. There's a road like of that course. on my commute to work, and it's so annoying. You let them over. Let you gotta let him over. Let him over. Nicole, I have a question for you. What? Um, I'm looking at you right now, thank the Lord, because we're on video. And I need to point out that your hair looks fantastic. Did you get a cut? Oh, yeah, but it's I don't... It's short. I don't like it. It's too short. Oh, I like it. I think you look amazing. I'm trying to think of your celebrity doppelganger, but it's not coming to mind right away. But I feel like I, I will have think the same haircut as Clea Duvall in She's All That. Which is... Oh, a you are all that, though, so that makes sense. For people that are old like me. Mm. So what else is going on besides parking and driving? Um, I have started watching We Crashed, or what, not We Crashed, the, the fictionalized version of the WeWork dude, starring okay. Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway. And it's not very good. But Jared Leto is, like, not good. But um, Anne Hathaway is actually very compelling as his mentally ill wife. <laughs> really? I mean, I don't know if she's mentally ill, but she is Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin, famously. They sort of make a thing about how that sort of overshadows her life. Whether or not that actually is true, I don't know. I do know that she had a summer house right next door to Gwyneth's summer house. So the movie makes it seem like Gwyneth and her are not close, but I'm like, they had summer houses next to each other. How interesting. Now I have a question just going back to Jared Leto quickly. Um, I don't know if anyone else has noticed this, but I feel like Jared Leto has been the same age ever since we knew him. So when he was originally on my soul called life, I feel like he was like 35 or 40. And <laughs> I feel like he's still 35 or 40. Like, yeah. how, what is he? I think he's in his mid forties, isn't he? I don't know. Um, he's a little bit older than me, I think. Um, that seems wrong I feel like by this time we've known him so long he should be in his late 70s well that doesn't make any sense when he was on my so-called life he was a teenager and I was a teenager do you think that maybe he wasn't a teenager and he just got into like full-on extreme makeup like he likes to do now you know for roles and looks like unrecognizable but back then so really he was like 50 in my so-called life but in makeup to look like a teenager no, he's 50 years old now. Um, they didn't have the makeup technology back in the 90s to make him look like a teenager. Um, mm. But it is annoying because now I'm like, oh, he's in his mid-40s. But as I move into my mid-40s, that means people I think in their mid-40s are going to be in their 50s, which means I'm going to be in my 50s, which is upsetting. I know. 50, that does seem extremely old. Sorry to all our geriatric listeners, but you're close to death and we're just we're just aware of it. Stop eating popcorn. I it's can't. So I'm so hungry, loud. guys. Uh, is it really? Yes. Can anyone else hear it? Yes. <laughs> okay, that's my last piece, I swear. <laughs> I was trying to, like, let it dissolve in my mouth. I haven't had any time to eat today. Why wouldn't you just eat I ha- some ice cream? Cold, soft that's food. That's true. <laughs> or rice pudding. Or any food that you would find at an old folks home. <laughs> Hummus. Mm-hmm. But no vegetables, just a hummus with a spoon. Of course, vegetables are too crunchy. That's maybe even more crunchy than popcorn. Popcorn is loud, but it's not as loud as a chip. No, chips are loud. Also, they're at the Nighthawk, which I just learned does no longer serve tater tots with cheese. So I'm glad I left New York because that was like my one joy. Um they, I would get like a hummus platter, which has pita and olives, but also like crunchy vegetables. And I don't have to wait till the loud part of the movie to eat the crunchy vegetables because I'd be too embarrassed <laughs> to be chomping on a carrot. Uh, what do you think the worst food to eat on a podcast would be? Popcorn's pretty loud. Um, potato chips are really crunchy and the bag is so loud. That's part of mm. the issue is your popcorn bag is also very loud. The bag... Is the loudest part. The crunching itself is minimal. I think baked Alaska, as we've mentioned before, being very inconvenient to eat at the beach 
or in a movie theater <laughs> is also bad to eat on a podcast. I don't know, but it's fire. Soft. It's dangerous. Well, I know, but it's on fire. Well, you don't eat it while it's on fire. You just light it on fire. And then that explains a lot. <laughs> That's why I've never been back, invited back to the Baked Alaska Festival. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They just invited you back to Burning Man, where fire eating is normalized. Burning Man, what nobody knows about Burning Man is it is actually just began as a uh, flambe festival where people would have things like bananas, foster, <laughs> grape Suzette, uh-huh. baked Alaska. Um, and then the hippies took it over and ruined it like they do with everything else. But originally it was just called flambe away and before it was dubbed Burning Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not a lot of people know that secret history. <laughs> The secret is Burning Man. <laughs> it began as flambe away all day. <clears throat> um, speaking of Burning Man, I have some Ben and Jen updates. Hit us. Just kidding. They're really, the press is really just kind of resting on their laurels and just still talking about the engagement. They can't talk about anything else because there is no other news. Um, but they were caught holding hands in public. Uh oh. Um, which is scandalous for an engaged couple. And also, there was a literal article titled Ben and Jen, How They Feel About Having Children Together. And I'm like, these people are in their (laughs) 70s. Like, I guess you can get like a donor egg, like fucking Janet Jackson, and have a baby when you're 50. Men obviously have babies when they're 50 all the time. Um, but yeah, I don't, I mean, Chloe Seveny claims that she just got pregnant from regular stuff at the age of 45. So who knows? Maybe celebrities do have preternatural longevity when it comes to having children. I doubt it though. That's why they're famous. But here's my question is why, do I say that a lot? Here's my question. I feel like, is it my audience? Give us some feedback. You listen to this podcast. Is that my catch tagline? Here's my question. I think it may be so. Anyway, here's my question. Um, why do people feel like just because they like, you know what I mean? They fall in love and they're getting married. Like, why do they feel like they need to procreate? Like, why is it not enough to just be like 50 and in love? You have to like try to have a baby. I don't get it. Um, I think the press makes more of a big deal of it than anyone else. Right. So they're probably not. No, they're not. They said that the person that they interviewed, who apparently is close to Jen and Ben, but also is willing to give an interview about whether or not they want to have a baby, a zombie baby, um, they were like, no, they're past that time in their lives. And I was like, who is this person? It's not even a real person. Here's my question. Was it just a doctor that they interviewed? <laughs> yes. It was do- the doctor from The Simpsons. Um, here's my question. Copyright. Um, if they have a baby, do you think it will be born with a phoenix rising on its back? <laughs> like its dad. No, I don't think Ben is like, it's like a superhero or anything. I think that he just got a tattoo. Hmm. I thought maybe he was born with it. No, plenty of people have back tattoos and their babies come out smooth Tattoo free. Hmm. Well, call into the show if you've ever been born with a tattoo by accident. I can tell that you're eating popcorn still. No, that's because you can see me. I'm not even looking looking at you. And I heard it. Close your eyes. No. Close your eyes. No. And do you think I'm eating it now? Yes. Ah, I'm not. (laughs) I was fake chewing. (laughs) Foiled again. The chewing sound is what I can hear. So whether there's popcorn in there or not, cease all chewing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. I'm putting this one piece back in the bag. Um, Should we get on to our topic today? It is a doozy, folks. Yes. It's a good one. We decided to do food trends, which we should do more because I'm actually, I find it very fun to research. I I decided to do the martini trend, um, if it can even be called that. Um, And... I had a great time, but also I want to do a follow-up of just cocktail trends in general because so amusing out there, the reporting that is done about what people are drinking. Um, Let's hear it. 
So I decided to do the martini after seeing that article, Wellness is Dead, Long Live the Martini in Grub Street. And I'm going to quote a lot from that at the beginning. Um, So I'm sorry that I have to read long quotes from New Yorkers verbatim. Um, I also got information from the New York Times, RIP, (laughs) Liquor.com, and Class Bar Magazine. Amazing. I also want to point out the reason why I find this article hilarious is because the martini has never not been trendy with someone. Exactly. So I found some articles where people are like, the martini is back. Um, One was from 2008, which if you will recall is the height of molecular gastronomy. And that's when you guys aren't familiar with that phrase is when everyone was turning food into like, gels and foams <laughs> and puzzles <laughs> yes to later um, be enjoyed in 2020 so this motherfucker in 2008 made an edible martini which means he turned a martini into an edible gel thing which sounds disgusting that's rude who did this i don't know i don't want to i don't want to dox him um <laughs> and then once again in 2012 there was a martini surge (laughs) and then also in 2019 um and this will come to make more sense to you why i found this but basically in 2019 bon appetit was like here's how to make a martini bar in your own home Uh, yes so anyway this article that i found is written by a person who seems to have no idea what's going on in the world um this person says (laughs) that um so Emily Sandberg, Sundberg, she says that historically martinis are a drink of gravitas for me, conjuring up images of a tailored suit, men with money clips and stacks of cash. So that means she hasn't been out since the 80s, right? Because that <laughs> is what she's talking about is the 80s. <laughs> stacks of cash. Yes. I would like to sit down at the bar. Let me just get these stacks of cash out of my pocket. It's very hard to sit with all this cash stacked. Kind of like the George Costanza wallet. Your pants can just burst open at any time. Yeah. So I'm just like, okay, sure. I I guess there are people in the world for whom the martini hasn't been seen out in a bar since the 80s. But that means they're old. And I'm pretty sure this person is probably close to my age based on what they go on to say. They're not so old that they haven't left the house since the 80s. It's very interesting because, like, you already kind of mentioned this, that, like, the martini of all things, kind of similar to, like, a cheeseburger or a slice of pizza, like, has never really gone anywhere. It's always been there. We've always, a martini's always been in fashion. Yeah, this article is detailing the fact that 20-somethings are really getting into them, which makes sense. Kind of, because they already took over Bemelman's famously. Now you can't just go sit at Bemelman's and have a little classy drink. All the 20-year-olds are there. So, Do you know last time I went to Bemelman's, I had to wait on a line for 30 minutes and then just stand waiting for a, a seat at the bar for like another hour. I was aghast. This is what I'm talking about. I was aghast. <laughs> I was aghast at Bemelman's. They took, they took it over and made it as like a scene so now you can't just like chill in there um i know it's really which is fine they'll move on soon enough um this person also goes on to describe she's like so it's no longer a drink of gravitas it's now i'm seeing people friends gathered around burgers and fries 20 somethings order round after round at happy hour which is a death sentence which i agree with that like obviously only people in their 20s can drink like three martinis and once you yeah. do that a couple of times, I think you stop. Um, well, there's the famous joke that uh, I heard at Keen's one time, which is that martinis are like boobs. Two is too many, a three is too many, and one is not enough. Although yes. one is, of course, enough. However, this is just a ridiculous old joke. But three is too many. Yeah, sure is. Um, they then go on to interview Toby Caccini, the owner of Long Island Bar. Do you know that guy? Mm-hmm. Is that how you say his last name? I don't know. All right. Well, his name's Toby. Um, I feel like they always are interviewing this dude about everything that goes on. I feel like I've read multiple articles where this someone at Long Island Bar is being interviewed. And I'm like, why 
his place. They must just have like a New York Times connection or something. Hmm. Um, he's saying, okay, so actually it's true. We've noticed a big uptick in martinis at Long Island Bar. And like we used to have, their most popular drink used to be like their gimlet. Um, and now they're making like 71 martinis a night. <laughs> That's very specific number. I will say that in like the early 2000s and in like the 2010s, that when like people were like into the whole kind of like, you know, prohibition vibe that I think people were probably drinking a lot more brown liquor. So Mm -hmm. maybe like, you know, in some sense, like there's like a difference based on that. But I don't know. Well, he was saying that it's he's comparing it to when everyone started ordering old fashions and not really knowing what they were because of Mad Men. Right. Or everyone drinking Mezcal. That, to me, I still don't fully understand. Um, Me neither. I don't think there's any way everyone who drinks Mezcal actually enjoys it. It's very specific. Yeah. Um, Way to ruin a perfectly good margarita. You know what I'm saying? Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. I'm not not really a Mezcal guy. Um, So she then goes on to interview a self-proclaimed party girl artist. And I simply must quote her directly because this woman is so whatever. Make your own opinions. Um, (laughs) She says, espresso martinis have been deemed basic, which we'll come back to that later. Vodka cranberry can trigger war flashbacks to the trenches of the meatpacking district. So, okay, this woman is far too young to have ever been around in the meatpacking district when it was like in its heyday. Um, totally. So I don't know what she's talking about. She just goes on to say a Cosmo is a dead giveaway that you think you're a Carrie Bradshaw. And I also disagree with this. I think the Cosmo also had kind of a resurgence quietly, politely. It did have a quiet resurgence. You're absolutely um, right. And the, I'm pretty sure this person that they're interviewing is in their twenties, by the way. Um, I could be wrong though. If anyone has read the article and is listening, tell me if I'm wrong. But I don't know why they would interview someone above the age of 20 because that's not cool. But, uh, okay, so it's a dead giveaway that you think you're a Carrie Bradshaw in the year 2022 if you're ordering a Cosmo. I'm like, do people in their 20s truly still even, like, idolize Carrie Bradshaw? Like, is that still happening? Like, isn't that over? Hasn't yeah, I don't, I don't think so. someone else come along? <laughs> and then she says... Uh, I think my cat's about to be on screen here. My parents' cat that they won't come pick up. Um, so then they go on to say, a martini is if you think you are Carrie Bradshaw, but have enough sense to be embarrassed by it. What? Ooh. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's also no. like, no, I, it doesn't make any sense. And it, also, well, A, it doesn't make any sense. Can't we just like not use Carrie Bradshaw as a reference anymore? Like, the, why does it have to be like that? Why do people in their 20s, in current years, still talk about Carrie Bradshaw like she's some sort of, like, I don't know. I'm frustrated by it. But I agree with you, but I also just, like, cannot, I do not connect with the, like, I think that when you walk into a bar, you should order what you like. If you like a Cosmopolitan, that's what you should get. If you like a fucking rum and Coke, then drink that. Life's extremely fucking short. I just cannot like understand really why anyone would waste their time worrying what you think you should be drinking. If you like fucking like, I don't know, Zinfandel drink that. Who gives a shit? I guarantee you that you judge people on what they drink when you in your twenties. That's what people do. Well, that's another sad part of this is that you think sometimes when you're twenties that being judgmental and look and like, uh, judging what people like is cool but like liking or like not liking things is cool but then I think you learn as you get older that liking things is cooler than not liking them at least for me yeah um, well we're both very old so we have moved past our judgmental phase I, I never judge anyone now for any reason <laughs> certainly not true. certainly not the person in this article that I'm making fun of <laughs> um <laughs> she then goes on to say that I order a martini around people who I want to believe I am interesting so I'm just like she just a bare-faced in her 20s, not fully formed. And that is why this is happening. You know, she's right. like just telling a major magazine that she wants people to think that she's interesting and that she thinks that ordering a martini will make that happen. 
Um, yeah, we need to give this person grace and good hopes for the future. <laughs> a hug. We're giving you a hug. It's going to be okay. Because um, you'll she, probably be embarrassed about this in a couple of years. But. Whatever. Um, the, she then goes on to say something which I do identify with. Is it, It's extremely boozy and so it's more affordable. You can drink two and be drunk. Which I'm like, okay. But two martinis sure. is like $75 in New York, isn't it? Mm-hmm. She could just drink Miller Lite. Um, That's true. They also then go on to say that perhaps this martini trend is a move away from the insufferable natural wine movement. I added the insufferable. (laughs) 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 Um, Which is something that's interesting because here in Indiana, I do miss the ubiquitous amounts of natural wine that were available to me in New York. Basically, it's not possible to open a restaurant now or a bar and not have natural wine. I don't think it's I think it's illegal. It the, is against the law. The national drink of New York City is natural wine. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting how people really kind of get into things and like and ruin them. I think the thing with trends that's annoying is it ruins perfectly good things. You know, like it just takes like little by little, year by year, just or week by week rather, really takes the fun out of it. You know what I mean? Totally. By fetishizing it so much. Like natural wine is great martinis are great like matisse is great <laughs> but matisse. like i just mean like the whole like matisse is design he... trend matisse inspired design trend that uh, now i is didn't like, so. i didn't know i'm out of the loop um they also think that um the martini is kind of the return to brainless partying and just like instead of everyone kind of like being into the wellness thing which they said you know there was a sober curious movement which that was real Mm-hmm. Um, they opened that non-alcoholic bar in Greenpoint. I don't know if it's still there. Probably. Um, so. But they're like, since you can kind of go out and party now, it's just fun to get fucked up, basically. And I think what they're actually talking about is that 20-somethings are just going to bars and drinking martinis. And I don't drink martinis like that. I usually drink a martini if I'm out to dinner. Like, Me too. I'm not going to go out to a bar and order a martini. That's not my vibe. And I think that that's what people are noticing is that people are just chilling at the bar all night long drinking martinis, which to me is crazy, but that's what young people do. They're stupid. (laughs) Yeah. I used to jump on the back of moving trucks when I was in my twenties. So who am I to say about someone ordering a martini or not ordering a martini? And I'm with you. I don't order a martini if I'm out at a bar. Not that I go to bars anymore. If I'm at like a nice bar, for instance, Long Island bar, I would order a martini there, but not at just like Montero's. Right. I don't even know if I would order. Well, I, if I was having a burger at Long Island Bar, but I want to I want to eat if I'm drinking a martini. It's part of the ritual. I enjoy it. Mm. Um, they also mentioned that the martini is escaped from the seltzers of the pre-pandemic. And like that actually resonated with me because I drink a lot of seltzers and I they're not good. Like I don't like them, but I would just kept drinking them. <laughs> Like a hard seltzer or a regular seltzer? Hard seltzer. I've never really fucked with a hard seltzer. I think maybe I've tried it once or twice, but I've never inhaled. Not really helpful. um, So I'm just saying seltzers are gross, and I think people kind of just, like, got tired with them saturating in the market and then also being like, wait, these are actually disgusting. Um, so then I want to move on to another martini that is getting some press, which is according, not according to that other woman that we interviewed, but, um, the espresso martini, um, is back again, even though it could be argued that it never really went away. Um, famously the espresso martini was invented in 1983. This is not a true story, by the way, but this is what everyone says. Um, Where a famous supermodel walked into a bar and said she needs something to wake her up and fuck her up. And so the bartender invented the espresso martini. Um, So obviously then it moved into the 90s when the quote-unquote martini was having a day and really what this like vodka drinks was having a day but everyone called them all martinis so they listed all of these martinis which I think are hilarious because I had forgotten about some and some I'd never heard of so they're talking about the french martini the apple teeny the lychee 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 martini remember yeah, that, that the whole time yeah 
uh, pineapple martini, porn star martini, and breakfast What's martini. What's that? What's well, a porn star martini? I'll tell you. So a porn star martini is vanilla vodka, passion fruit liqueur, passion fu- fruit puree, vanilla simple syrup, and sparkling wine. <laughs> Holy shit. The breakfast martini is marmalade, a marmalade cocktail that includes gin, marmalade, orange liqueur, lemon, and simple syrup. Um, I've never understood the marmalade and cocktails thing. It I can understand it. Like bitter. Yeah, I think hopefully they, you know, thin it down. But who the hell knows? Um, French martini is vodka, pineapple juice, and Chambord. So basically, obviously, the trend here is like very sweet drinks that don't taste like alcohol. You know what I really do think deserves a bigger comeback than the espresso martini is the apple teeny. The apple teeny. An apple teeny, if done right, without, you know, like apple pucker. But like I've had... I remember having like good apple martinis back in the day. That's a delicious drink, an apple martini. Yeah, it just makes me think of the shot, the Washington apple, which actually is really delicious. Um, It's like a whiskey-based shot with some sort of red apple. I can't remember how they make it, but it's delicious. Look it up and send us in the recipe, everyone. Um, Okay, so then... This basically trends, you know, essentially come and go as a reaction to people just getting sick of hearing about it all the time. So the year 2000 was the year the first bar opened that didn't serve vodka. So as we all know, vodka is now even still struggling to get her, you know, popularity back. Um, 2000 is like the year that people were also really into like mixology, you know, like milk and honey was the bar that opened. They were like, we refuse to serve vodka here, which I'm like, fuck off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it was the year 2000. So whatever. Um, And so the espresso martini as a result sort of lost traction, um, but it didn't die. It moved to Australia and they still in Australia and New Zealand, it's like the most popular drink there. Um, those wacky Australians. I mean, it's becoming once again the most popular drink here. I'm, yeah, I'm seeing it everywhere, and I haven't, I've yet to dip my toe back in our espresso martiniville, but I would, I would do it. Um, other people think that the reason why espresso martinis are back is because good coffee has been around, um, mm. or you know, it's a lot more people know a lot more about coffee now, and it's just like in bar, bars more often. People like more bars have espresso machines, so. More bars right. can make an espresso martini. Um, they also let us know that LCD Sound System travels with an espresso machine so they can kickstart their cocktail hour with espresso martinis, which I think is crazy. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, my God. I have a funny story that this just reminds me of. Years and years ago, Michael Peretti and I were at Marlo and Sons having dinner at the bar. And I think we both – I definitely noticed, and I thought, I thought Michael noticed, but that James Murphy – was sitting next to him the whole time. And when James Murphy got up, I was like, did you notice that that was James Murphy sitting next to you the whole time? And he's like, yeah, he was standing on my foot what? <laughs> for like an hour. I was like, and you didn't say anything. He's like, well, I don't know. Like I just kind of like let it go. I was like, he was, he was like hard standing on his foot for an hour. Man, James Murphy, he's always, he can do whatever he wants. (laughs) Yeah. He just does whatever he wants. I mean, unpopular opinion. I don't like LCD sound system and I just don't. I really like LCD sound system, but after everybody, but not me. Well, that's good. I appreciate your honesty here, but, um, it is interesting that they've traveled with an espresso machine to have espresso martinis, but I guess that's the one thing about being a celebrity. That's cool. You can do things like that. Why the fuck not? Aren't they, like, famous enough that they can stay at motels and have espresso machines in their rooms? I mean, that's what I would think. Like, why? Like, go. I mean, let's see. Hopefully, they're using the espresso machine to, like, also just have, like, a cappuccino in the morning. Maybe it's, like, on their tour bus or something. That's probably. I don't think they're carrying it. Like, they don't have, like, a guy who's carrying it everywhere they go they don't have a barista that they keep with them at all <laughs> a time. portable barista how embarrassing <laughs> uh yeah i'm a roadie barista for lcd sound system there but i have to fucking carry the espresso machine behind them physically in my arms figure out how to 200 pounds. hook that up in every hotel room i don't even know how that would work <laughs> you know you need like a water source i think so um 
But I also want to remind everyone, I think it's funny that all these articles are coming out about the espresso martini because I went and looked and saw like when people were writing articles about it. And there was one in 2018 that was like, the espresso martini is back. And I was like, this actually is true in my experience because I was bartending at the time. And people were starting to really get back into the espresso martini, but then the pandemic happened. So I think that all of these articles that they're writing now, it's not as shocking as they think it is because it was really starting to come back in 2018. So it's just kind of crescendoed from there. Absolutely. And like the espresso martini, like it makes sense. It's like the natural next progression for people who used to drink four loco. Or vodka Red Bull. Exactly. It's like you want to fucking get jazzed up, but your nose is too, like, you've ruined your sinus cavities from snorting cocaine. So your next best, like, adult bet is the espresso martini. Yeah. Um, I also think that, well, it's even so popular, like, in America that we put one on on the menu at the restaurant that I work at. um, Really? Where we don't actually have espresso, though. We use cold brew. Oh, interesting. Do you use, like, a coffee liqueur, too? Um, yes, they do. And they put cream in it, which it, it works, but. Cream? Know. Yeah, to make it frothier since we don't have the espresso. Ah, um, interesting. Yeah, so non-vegan. But, um, yeah, so, you know, it is true that they are more popular, obviously, than they have been in previous years. The internet says that it's people searching for espresso martini online has jumped 300% in the last three years. <laughs> But only in New Hampshire. Or where was it popular for people to look up bean recipes? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, no. Maine? Ver- Vermont. Oh, Vermont. Bernie Sanders is probably doing it. We find out he's just like a fucking beanophile. He was the one looking up all the bean recipes. Yeah. And I just want to... Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> His yeah. nickname. Good job. Um, so I also just want to finish my research by repeating to you the headline of an article that was about this, and it is, the espresso martini is back, and we need it more than ever. <laughs> Goddamn right we do. We need it. We We're need tired. It. We, as human beings, <laughs> need espresso martinis more than we ever have before. You know what? That's not wrong. All right, <laughs> let's take a break. Uh, I'm going to go get an espresso martini quickly from my portable barista, and we'll be right back. <laughs> Jeeves? HRN is excited to announce that we've launched our channel on Kitsch, the new food-centric live streaming video platform for interviews, cooking classes, and more. In April, in collaboration with Kitsch and the Mushroom Council, we're celebrating Earth Month with delicious, nutritious, and sustainable mushroom recipes. Check out the latest videos on our channel to see Eat Your Heartland Out host Capri Cafaro, Jupiter's Almanac host Matthew Rayford, and Item 13 host Yoram Akuaku moderate recipe demos with chefs Jeremy Fox and Ali Rosen. Join us at K-I-T-T-C-H dot com to become part of the first live streaming community for the food obsessed. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Okay, folks, I'm fucking jacked up. Nicole, how about you? Uh, I'm just drinking coffee without any espresso in it. I mean, without any martini in it. Oh, got it. Okay. Well, folks, I decided to talk about something today for food trends that 
I haven't yet seen come back, but I'm going to talk about it because in my mind, it's probably like the biggest food trend of all time or one of them at least. And one that like is kind of yet to bounce back because it bounced so far up and then so far down. And I think people still have a negative um, impression of it. Also, 90% of the time, this item is not good at all. (laughs) But when it is good, when it's like done the right way, it's like the most delicious thing. But at this point in time in America, it's almost never, never very nice. So folks, without any further ado... I bring to you the story of the tiny, wrinkly, sun-dried tomato. (laughs) Nicole, Uh, how do you feel? I already know the answer to this question, but I'm just going to have you tell the listeners, the listener, how do you feel about sun-dried tomatoes? I feel like they are unnecessary, but I could, I'll eat them if they're on something. There is a funny episode of Aqua Teen Hunger Force that has something to do with in order to like get possessed by the demon or something, they have to eat this entire sandwich and he eats the sandwich. And then the devil demon is like, wait, it didn't work. And he's like, you took the sun-dried tomatoes off the sandwich. So now I can't possess you. Or <laughs> That's so funny. I know. I'm, we were raised in the nineties and I feel like the nineties is when sun-dried tomatoes really, really peaked. Although they had a very long run because they were really introduced <laughs> into cooking in America in like the late sixties and oh. then maintained a stronghold on our society until I'd say the early two thousands. I remember my mom getting sun-dried tomato tortillas and sun-dried tomato like pesto She'd spread oh, yeah. the sun-dried tomato pesto on the tortilla and make, and then like regular pesto and goat cheese and make like a delicious sun-dried tomato tortilla pizza, which I would still That does sound day. good. It was good. So I've been lucky enough to have sun-dried tomatoes like in Italy before and they're very good. Then it's very different because they're not dried until they're the fucking texture of like... I don't even know, like, like old dead foot skin. Like, yeah, you know, they're not supposed to be like that. Well, that's what happens when you mass produce them, though, in order to exactly them, like preserved. <clears throat> exactly, they're but not also, supposed to be like. What that. is a sun-dried tomato tortilla? Do they really fucking sun-dry some tomatoes and then mush them into the tortilla flour somehow, or is it just red food coloring? <laughs> I think it's like red food coloring and like paprika and like sugar. You know what I mean? And like vinegar or maybe like tomato paste or something. I don't think they're like out there like sun drying tomatoes and then putting them in the tortilla. But what a fun color. So I'm going (laughs) to I am going to read you a couple of funny things. I'm going to start with a headline. I got my information today from most of it from an article called Taste of um, sorry, called Eating Well. No, no, no. Sorry. From tasteofcooking.com, an article by Pira Kirshna. And then I'm going to start you off with a quote, like a little short snippet from an article called Eating Well is the Best Revenge, in an article by Charles Moynihan. Um, and then... Blah, 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 is blah, eating well the best revenge? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Living well, sure. Eating well, maybe not. It's also, um, you know, wasn't, isn't it revenge is a dish best served cold? So how does, what is he, how does Well, he you'd have to be eating only cold things, I guess, if this is to come full circle. <laughs> Eating well, eating cold things well is the best revenge. Successfully serve cold. (laughs) Okay. In this article, this man, Charles Moynihan, published on June 23rd, 1985, begins his article by saying, quote, there was a time when Italian food was the very symbol of obesity. What? Picture. What? Picture the time-honored cliche of the bug-eyed fatty, his neck wreathed in a napkin, size of a towel, slurping up strands of spaghetti, a, a straw-covered... Yeah. Wow. Picture... This is from 1985. Picture is this about the time-honored... <laughs> yes, this is about Tony Soprano. <laughs> this is about Paul Perdue. Picture the time-honored cliche of the bug-eyed fatty, his neck wreathed in a napkin the size of a towel, slurping up strands of spaghetti, a straw-covered bottle of raw Chianti at hand. Raw well, Chianti? This guy knew about raw wine back then? I mean, <laughs> this man. Well, things have changed. 
Today, Italian food is not only chic. No products in big city America are more the rage than fresh mozzarella and sun-dried tomatoes, but downright healthy. It's basil-scented, balsamic vinegar sprinkled, primavera. It's it's basil-scented, balsamic vinegar sprinkled, primavera blanketed lean cuisine. Lean cuisine. <laughs> I just thought that was funny and wanted to read it to you. Okay. Did he invent no. lean cuisines or were those already around? Yes, that is Mr. Paul Cuisine. <laughs> cuisine was his real nas- last name, little known fact. Now I take you, Nicole, to an article by the incomparable Ruth Reichel, uh, written in 1988 for the Los Angeles Times. Around the home, notes on gazebos, sconces, and tea kettles. <laughs> right. Tart cherry. Then apostrophe, tart cherries. That's apostrophe top cherry. I don't understand. Tart cherries. Tart cherries. Is right. just it's at the confusing, end of yes, list it's of a very, furniture? Yes, it's a confusing, confusing title. So then she goes on to say, it's small and dry and red all over. It, <laughs> sorry. It's small and dry and red all over. It's also very delicious, expensive, and increasingly seen in the very best places. This is not about a tomato. It's about a cherry, but I just really wanted to read it too because it's also about dried fruit that was trendy and it really made me laugh. When I was looking for sun-dried tomato content. But don't she worry. She wasn't we'll talking tomatoes. about sun-dried tomatoes? No, we're going to get back tomatoes, to tomatoes in a second. But if you think the subject is sun-dried tomatoes, you're wrong. Mm. That was last year's trendy red dried fruit. <laughs> Modern food fads. <laughs> Modern food fads such as the rapid pace that sun-dried tomatoes are placed in supermarket shelves. Meanwhile, this year's trendiest dried food hasn't made its way into the mainstream Yet. But dried red tart cherries probably never will. For unlike She's tomatoes, right. <laughs> which which are found almost everywhere, tart cherries are rare, and it takes eight pounds of fresh fruit to make a single pound of dried. What? But but fresh, I know, isn't that shocking? But fresh tart cherries are wonderful in pies and are even more delicious when dried until the flavor has become concentrated. Um... Sprinkled with a little sugar, they have flavor unlike anything else. They are sour and sweet with a fresh tanginess that make you want to eat another as soon as the first is finished. They aren't much to look at. Sort of like raisins, only red. <laughs> uh, I didn't even know about this dried about, cherry thing. <laughs> I love dried cherries. I don't think they're that rare, but apparently in 1988, Ruth Reichel just did not see a future for them. What do you do with them? Well, if you're well, extravagant... Tart cherries are different from regular cherries. No, she's just talking about dried cherries. Oh, then why did she say specifically tart cherries? Because they, they I don't know, because they're, I have no idea why she's calling them tart cherries. It's just, she's talking about regular dried cherries. What do you think you'll do with them? Well, if you're extravagant, you'll eat them right out of the package as a snack, but they do wonderful things to pies, tarts, to say nothing of cakes. In fact, any place you might use raisins or dried apricots would be appropriate for these wonderful little nuggets. Do people put dried apricots into a pie? Shouldn't you have wet apricots in there that were That's not exactly dried? That's exactly right, Nicole. <laughs> Ruth Reichel, you have something to learn about making pie. Okay. Okay, also, do so people now, even make apricot pie? Is that a thing? Yeah, I've made a pie with apricots in it. I love a, an apricot very much. Okay, and they were all wet apricots, though, not dry. Only wet apricots, of Great. course, Nicole. I really save my dried apricots, honestly, mostly for savory cooking, to be honest. Sure. Okay, now we're moving on to the Taste of Cooking article, um, in which we're going to talk a lot about uh, sun-dried tomatoes. But she mentions... Ruth Reichel in here, which prompted me to, um, to talk, to look up Ruth Reichel's thoughts on sun-dried tomatoes, which we're going to get to later. Um, okay. So they were, they were featured at both hip and workday pizzerias turned into popular bagel flour and incorporated into half a billion dinner party salads during the Clinton administration and the food uh, media so they do went just wild. Throw it into the, so they throw it into the bagel flour. They must throw it into the tortilla flour. Right. Am I right? I know. Although I think what happened with sun-dried tomato bagels, I always remember there being like little pieces of sun-dried tomato in them. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's disappointing that we don't have sun-dried. I don't, I'm not really a big bagel eater in general, but I think having a, I think a sun-dried tomato bagel, I don't know why they just like eliminated them. People like really turned on sun-dried tomatoes. Like, <laughs> they really, really did. hard. Um, and also there's a, 
place in Seattle called, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a supermarket. And they had pesto bagels, which is still, sometimes to this day, I'll just have a memory. And they were the most delicious bagels I've ever had in my life because they had pesto in there. And that sounds absolutely amazing. A sun-dried tomato bagel is probably similar. Well, sun-dried tomato bagel with like pesto cream cheese. So Mm. they became very popular because in the 90s, and Bill Clinton definitely had a part in this, the Mediterranean (laughs) diet was a craze. Right. But I mean, they became popular like in the 80s too. Um, So anyway, this man, David Camp, wrote a book called The United States of Arugula. And he (laughs) notes that (laughs) Dean and DeLuca was one of the first places to get them. Um, they, he says they weren't too outlandish. You could use them in everything from salad to garnishing a chicken breast. And people loved the way they tasted. Um, like Savoir magazine was kind of starting, um, <laughs> in, I guess like the like late seventies, early eighties. And they really like, you know, like latched onto the sun-dried tomato and the editor in chief, the founding editor in chief said sun-dried quote, sun-dried tomatoes were this little flavor firecracker. Sure. Which I guess is kind of true. So then, like, restaurants, like, this restaurant, Barbetta, um, claimed to have served sun-dried tomatoes as early as 1968. But... Is it, like, world's best pizza or New York's best pizza? New York's first sun-dried tomato restaurant. Famous original sun-dried tomatoes. Um, So they're everywhere in the 80s. They're at um, Jeremiah Tower's famous uh, San Francisco restaurant called Stars. They're, of course, at um, Chez Panis. They are at Zabar's, selling for a million dollars a jar. (laughs) Um, They're everywhere. They really hit their peak in 1985, but then things started to get out of hand in the 90s, and Americans are like putting them in everything as we've already discussed. Like they start dehydrating them in commercial dehydrators instead of just letting them sit in the sun and come to flavor on their own time. We ruin everything. We start throwing them in bagels. We start throwing them in wheat thins. We start throwing oh, them yeah. in tortillas. Those sun-dried we... tomato wheat thins were good. I thought they were good too. We start throwing them in pesto. Um, so then this article goes on to say, quote, anything moves out of an exclusive domain into the public and people are using it gratuitously gratuitously, and not in a way that's sophisticated with flavor, high-end restaurants won't touch them at all. So basically, like, restaurants are like, you know, oh, like, it's corny now, right? And, like, yeah. we can see that with, like, food trends that have happened, like Brussels sprouts, for example. Brussels sprouts are delicious, but it's, I don't know, to serve Brussels sprouts at this point is a little bit, is a, can, a little corny. It kind of implies something that maybe you're not quite up to date. It's the mason jar of vegetables. It's the mason jar of vegetables, which is also <laughs> inconvenient because mason jars are extremely convenient and great way of <laughs> storing your food. And I still use them. I don't give a shit. Yeah, I still um, use them too. But, you know, I'm a child of the past. I mean, yeah. I also cook Brussels sprouts like four days a week. <laughs> I remember we had mason jar like lanterns that I made at Brucey. And I don't, other than that, Brucey wasn't a very trend place. Like there, that was like maybe the one thing that was like a trend that we did. Um, and like first building it, but there was like a leak one day and I came in to the restaurant and all the mason jar lamps were like filling with water <laughs> and like that's will electrocute everyone and burn down the restaurant. That sounds exciting. It was great. Um, okay. Um, so wait, Ruth I was Reichel... going to say, oh, I also, I work at a restaurant now that has Brussels sprouts on the menu. So just saying, I like them. I like them too. I'm just, but like <clears throat> something that we can relate to more in our current Yes. climate i think of like brussels sprouts the same way i think of like playing like the strokes out loud at a restaurant like i like <laughs> the strokes too but like to play them out loud at a restaurant is like kind of embarrassing um <laughs> sun-dried tomatoes this is a uh, a quote from a ruth reichel article written for the new york times in the 90s sun-dried tomatoes have moved into the realm of passe Along with items like raspberry vinaigrette, delicious. Yes. I love ra- raspberry vinaigrette. Raspberry coli also probably moved away. Raspberries Absolutely. in general, probably. <laughs> Raspberries are done. Cold pasta and red velvet cupcakes. Oh, They ew. used to be a chef's way of saying, I'm hip. I know it's new, Reichel says. But when they weren't new anymore, people got tired of them. We were discovering all sorts of other ingredients and sun-dried tomatoes just didn't have the same kind of cachet. Reichel insists that sun-dried tomatoes ought to stay obsolete. 
quote, they are an example of all of the worst qualities of a tomato. She says firmly, hard, chewy, not sweet, and without any of the lusciousness you want in a, t- in a tomato. I think that she's just talking about commercially dehydrated ones, though, because they shouldn't be hard and chewy. Exactly. They and should they be unctuous. They should be delicious and luxurious. And if they're done right, they're absolutely delicious. So as we are running short on time because of my parking fiasco today, should we go ahead and jump right on into our top either three favorite or least favorite food trends? Um, I can do least favorite, I think. Okay, go ahead. Um, goji berries. Honestly, <laughs> um, bowls. <laughs> No, but like goji berries that are like dried are just gross. And I tried Agreed. eating them for a long time. I'm like, okay, I'm going to be healthy and like fucking eat these things. And I'm just like, these things suck. I hate them. Mm-hmm. I agree um, with you. Other trends that I hate. Well, you go now because I, I, can't, I can't come up with three on the spot, but you can say one next and then I'll think of something. Okay. That's one that I don't like or do you like? You can do either one. Um, I think a food trend that I don't like is and firmly feel comfortable saying I don't like is food that's made for Instagram, like gimmicky food made for Instagram as someone who I think was an early adapter of maybe slightly gimmicky ish food ideas in a certain way, like just for the actual pure fun of it all. Um, and like, there's a way to kind of do things like that and have them still be good. But like, I don't know, I saw like a restaurant yesterday and God bless. I know who am I to say anything bad about your restaurant? But like, it was a place that like their whole kitchen is unlimited French fries, which does sound great, but they like come around in a bowl to your table with like unlimited French fries. And like, I guess what really turned me off about this is they're like, I somehow went on an Instagram rabbit hole of like looking at their Instagram and they're like, our social media person said that we're no longer going to have unlimited French fries and we'll have them until the day we die. And this person has been reprimanded. <laughs> And I was like, you suck. I don't even understand what. So, but the French fries thing is for Instagram. It's just like an Instagram-y thing. Like it's like, you know, in like things that are like gimmicky and trendy, like tape, like table side stuff that exists to be notor, like get gain notoriety rather than actually being fun or good. Like cooking a steak under lava or like salt bay or whatever bullshit. You know what I mean? Like that actually does no good. Um, okay. I want to think, so I have another trend that I like that luckily is still around, um, because it's so good. And that's tiramisu. Mm, Love tiramisu. (laughs) Love it, love it, love it. Okay. I'll say one I like now too. I like, um, I like pesto. Oh yeah. Pesto is great. Um, I'm trying to think of another one that was popular that I didn't like, but I don't know. I will say I do like acai bowls. I'm into that whole vibe, even though there's like 4,000 calories in one bowl. <laughs> I've never had one. Cause you're but... taking a smoothie and then you're putting granola on top of it and like coconut flakes and like more cocoa nibs and just, you know, a smoothie is already kind of a high calorie item. Totally. I like soft serve ice cream. Oh yeah. That's actually sort of having a moment all over again, all over again, all over again, all over again, all over again. Well, like there was definitely a soft serve moment when I was still working at diner. Mm -hmm. And when was that? What year was that? (laughs) 350 years ago that's when like sunday in brooklyn had their soft serve machine and then everyone we got a soft serve machine at diner but we never got it to work and then everyone was having soft serve in their normal restaurant like it was just like everywhere and now i think it's actually coming back again or it's just getting finally popular here in indiana because a couple of places that i know have soft serve now i love soft serve um those are ones that i really i really oh and i like quiche love quiche quiche is good Oh, what I like is the the trend that's sort of like a Starbucksy thing, but basically just like portable egg bites that you can just kind of take with oh. you on the road. Yeah, an egg bite makes sense. It's like a tiny quiche. Yeah, but no crust. No crust, like a tiny frittata. Well, folks, please write into the show. Let us know your favorite food trends and your least favorite food trends. I'm looking at you... 
one crustables. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, um, we're going on a break. Uh, I will be on vacation for a month, and so we're going on break. So we'll see you in June. And when we come back, we'll be like, we were on a break. We were on a break. Love you guys. Hasta la pasta. Bye. Bye. Life's Banquet is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.